powered by Clear Vision Development Group. This is Better Than Before with Tony Richards, a business leaders podcast. Each week, we'll provide you with top business insights, fresh perspectives from world-class guests, and the tools you need to lead better than before. And now, here's your host, author and business coach, Tony Richards. Ho, ho, everyone. Welcome to the program where today I'm going to be welcoming special guest Joseph O'Connor, who's a brain expert. He's going to be on our program today, and he's going to give us wisdom, thoughts on coaching, the brain for change and achievement in life. And we're going to talk about business application and a whole lot more. Just on a personal note, I want to thank everyone who's reached out to me to ask about my family and friends in Western Kentucky who were affected by the recent tornado that occurred. And I'm just super thrilled and happy to report that my family is all safe and sound. It was a scary event. I was on the phone with them. Their power was out. And they had no television or anything like that to track the storm. It probably missed them by 25 miles or so. But so unfortunate what happened to Mayfield and Princeton and Dawson Springs and a lot of other towns in Kentucky, Catawba and some others, I think, were affected also. Just a terrible, terrible storm, a terrible tornado, just massive. If you go to YouTube and you search Mayfield, Kentucky tornado, There's about a six-minute video there that's done by a drone flying over the damage, and it goes right over the town courthouse, which as the drone goes up over the courthouse, you see where the tornado sucked the top right out of the building. Just terrible, and so many stories that I've been exposed to. I feel a little bit helpless being 400 miles away. I live and work in Columbia, Missouri. I still own property and all down in Western Kentucky, and I visit there four or five times a year. It's where I like to go to relax and to rest on Kentucky and Barkley Lake. And I'm just so thankful that my family was all left with no harm or no damage. And my heart just goes out to all the people down there who lost their homes, their kids who lost their homes this Christmas, and now they're staying with friends and family and They're displaced, and I pray for them every day for peace and the restoration as they put that area back together after that awful, awful tragedy happened to them about a week ago. We got this great show for you today. Joseph O'Connor is my guest. I think you're going to find him fascinating. You'll get to listen in on our conversation, and that's coming up here next. Today's program is sponsored by our friends at University Subaru. And right now, when you get a new Subaru during the Share the Love event, Subaru will donate $250 to a charity in need. University Subaru, homegrown and proud of it. The best way to feel love is to share it. That's why Subaru created the Subaru Share the Love event. Subaru and Subaru dealerships will have donated over $225 million to help those in need. Get a new Subaru and Subaru will donate $250 to your choice of charity partners. The ASPCA, Make-A-Wish, Meals on Wheels or the National Park Foundation. Join us for the Subaru Share the Love event going on now through January 3rd at University Subaru. Are you working twice as hard but enjoying fewer rewards? Maybe you're highly accomplished, but you just can't seem to break through and make the next big move. 
or you run a business that has begun to grow stagnant. It doesn't have to stay that way. Even the best leaders have felt as if their careers were spiraling out of control. But that's when they had to lead and lead big. Tony Richards' new book, The Big Idea, 52 Ways to Be a Better Leader Now, will help launch you forward in leadership. Learn how to take charge and lead yourself, lead others, and lead your company. Purchase online today at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and our website, clearvisiondevelopment.com. Welcome back to Better Than Before. This is Tony Richards, and I'm so happy to have joined me today, Joseph O'Connor. He's the author of 19 books, including his most recent release, Coaching the Brain. He's the co-founder of the International Coaching Community, otherwise known as ICC, which boasts over 15,000 coaches as members worldwide. He's also the founder of the Neuroscience Coaching Center. And whether you're a coach, a business leader, an entrepreneur, you might be currently being coached by another coach, and you're thinking about getting yourself a coach, which you know my philosophy on that. Everyone needs a coach to help you improve. Or maybe you're just curious about how to coach your own self and your own brain, there's going to be something in our conversation here for you of interest. He follows his two great interests, giving coaching training and courses on creative nonfiction writing. And beyond his writing and coaching work, Joseph enjoys enlightening audiences with fascinating insights about how our brains actually work opposed to how we hope they do. And here to give us some of those insights on our program today is Joseph O'Connor. Joseph, welcome to the program. Thank you, Tony. It's great to be here. Now, you're joining us from UK, England, Great Britain, or Britain. Which do you prefer? The UK. UK's yeah. fine. Just outside London, where yeah. it is a bit dark and rainy, as it tends to be around this time of year. I was going to say, isn't that fairly common? <laughs> yeah, more often than, than we like. That's right. Well, thank you very much for taking the time to join me today and share some fascinating things with our audience. And That's a pleasure. Uh, You've written 19 books, and your newest book is called Coaching the Brain. I'm really looking forward to reading it. I've jotted down some notes and some highlights just looking at the table of contents. But tell me a little bit about your book, how you thought about writing it, how it came to be, and maybe some of the things in there that would be of interest to our audience. Well, I'm a coach, as you said, I'm an executive coach, I train coaches, and I'm always interested in what's missing from coaching, what's the missing piece. It's the same when you're coaching, what's interesting very often is not what people say, but what they didn't say, and what's missing from the conversation, that's where the value is. So I'm always looking for that, and about three years ago, it seemed to me that that neuroscience piece was missing. So I got very interested in this. And I've always been interested in that and and psychology generally. But I started by going to New York where I had a brain scan because I wanted to see what, (laughs) if I'm going to write about something, I want to start with it myself, try it out myself, see what's going on. And that was really interesting. And it gave me a lot of insights with the scan and the the report and everything else. Gave me a lot of insights into the way that I think and answered some questions for me, as well as giving me a series of highly brightly coloured photographs of my brain lighting up in various ways. So this then triggered me to start thinking about that. And as you said, I've written a number of books 
And I really enjoy writing on something that I want to learn about, because for me, writing on something is a way to learn, to do the research, to find out, to hopefully to produce something that is easy for other people to read and understand, because I've done all the spade work. I've done all the research and the understanding and kind of smoothed it down a bit so that it's rather more digestible. I always find it interesting when my clients ask me, is this going to work? And I always tell them, I don't experiment on my clients. Believe me, I've done the research, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, yeah, then, well, I say I wrote the book. It's funny to say that. You say you wrote the book. It compresses about two years of work into that, the agony and the ecstasy. Was that unusual for you for it to take two years? Is two years a long time, a medium amount of time, a short amount of time, considering the other books you've written? No, I'm actually thinking about it. It was two years from, as it were, brain scan to publication. So probably took about a year, year and three months to write, which is a little bit longer than, than for a lot of books I've done. But it's a technical subject. It's a fascinating subject. And it's, you know, it's like Aladdin's cave. You kind of dive into it, something you're interested in. And, and then that leads you to something else. And then that leads you to something else. And you're diving down these shiny, interesting rabbit holes. And you have to emerge sometime and put down in the end, what's most useful about it. I always wanted to make to see for me, there's a couple of things that can go wrong with neuroscience and coaching when you put them together. One is the, what I call the white coat syndrome, which is like, it doesn't help coaches to learn all the Latin names of the bits in the brain. You know, that's doesn't make you a better coach. So I operate on a purely need to know basis in terms of brain structure and anatomy. And then secondly, you get the other extreme, which is the oversimplification of what's going on, where you get talking about left brain people or right brain people, these sort of simplifications, which don't help either. So I wanted to clarify as much as I could, but also the subtitle was very important, Coaching the Brain, Practical Applications of Neuroscience to Coaching. Love that. So it's not a neuroscience book as such. It's a coaching book informed by the research and interesting things that neuroscience has brought up, especially in the last 10 years where it's really accelerated growth and how that can help us as coaches, how it modifies and refines some of our coaching models that we have already and suggests new ones. That's fantastic. Now, let me ask you something. It was in the introduction and it really caught my attention, but how do we hope our brains work? Because in the introduction, I read the thing that says we're going to learn how the brain works as opposed to how we hope that it works. So let's flip that over. How do we hope it works? There's that joke, isn't there, that I used to think that the brain was really fantastic and wonderful, but then I realized what was telling me that. <laughs> the brain. So, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So the brain is, where do we start? It's a Organ of the body. So although we can say coaching the brain, we're not really coaching the brain. We're coaching a whole person always, but we're kind of focusing on that part. And the brain is very much embodied. Sleep and exercise, for example, are very important for the brain. The brain needs it. And that's certainly a couple of things that I discovered. So you're not trying to treat people as an intellectual construct that only exists from the neck up. The brain is very much part of the body. Well, one of the questions that I've asked over the years that gets a variety of answers is how much sleep do you need? And one person might say, oh, I need five. And another person might say, I need eight. Somebody might say, I have to do it all weekend long. So 
based on your research, what is the right answer to that as far as how much sleep we need? There's been a lot of research on this in the last few years, and it seems like something like seven hours, but that's seven hours sleep. It's not seven hours in bed, because typically if you're in bed for eight hours, you'll get seven hours sleep. And you need the REM, the dream state sleep, which is very important for consolidating memories. And you need the deep sleep to rest the brain and refresh it. About a third of every day. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But you do need that. And there's, you know, there's some remarkable research, of course, mostly on what happens if you don't get that. What really struck me was that uh, here in the UK, we have British summertime and then the clocks go back and they go forward, right? What by one hour. So at the end of March every year, the clocks go forward by one hour, which means that basically you miss out on an hour's sleep. Yeah? And it's quite amazing that the data shows when you look at it from the big data point of view overall you get a spike particularly in road traffic accidents the next day you also get a spike in severity of sentences by judges you get a spike in violence it spikes and then it comes down again and that's just one hour difference wow wow uh, and that really struck me yeah that's so, fascinating the road accident thing is because people, they just space out a little bit. And you've only got to space out a little bit at the wrong time. And that has bad consequences. So one hour can make that spike, which you can see in big data. Then, because I used to do a lot of flying all over the world, and, and I used to pride myself on being able to jump off the red eye and, and, <laughs> and somehow subsist on, on a few hours sleep in the airplane. And I yeah. thought, well, okay, well, maybe I can, but really i don't want to anymore right <laughs> the other thing you mentioned with sleep just a few minutes ago was exercise for your brain what do you mean by that well apart from the kind of more the neuroscience stuff with regard to the brain which we can get onto my research taught me there's three the most important things you can do for your brain one of them as we said is sleep one of them is exercise because the brain's part of the body, it needs that blood flow going around. Mm -hmm. And if it doesn't get it, it starts to deteriorate just in the same way that the rest of the body does. So there, again, there is very solid research on physical exercise, how it affects the brain and particularly helps us to focus, to concentrate, to think better. It's kind of ironic because having coached many executives, I've heard them talk about, and I've heard their friends talk about, well, you know, I haven't got time to sleep. I'm too busy. I've got to get on. I've got to do things. I, I sleep when I'm dead. Or I haven't got time to exercise. The most exercise I get is getting up from my seat and getting a cup of coffee and coming back again or changing the computer monitor. I don't have and, time to read books. I don't have time yeah. to journal my thoughts. I don't have, yeah. right? Just insert whatever in the, I don't have time. And yeah, and it's, but it's a paradox here because the exercise and the sleep are precisely the things that would help anyone to actually focus and concentrate better and do their job better. Yeah. What's the third thing? Third thing is some form of mindfulness meditation practice. And that's, again, there's rock solid research around that in terms of how that helps people to be more resilient, to combat stress to sleep better, particularly it affects the connections between the prefrontal cortex here, which is the kind of executive part of the brain, and the amygdala, which is the part down at the base, which 
is the part, the emotional part that's triggered when we're anxious or upset or fearful, or stressed. It's that so, uh, flight or fight piece, right? That's it. The fly or fight. Yeah, that's the bit. I've heard people say, well, I'm going to behave completely unbiased. Is that even possible for a human being? I don't think so. Not completely unbiased. I mean, the brain always has some bias attached to it, right? Based on our previous experiences and things of that nature. Yeah, I mean, we're biased towards our own survival for a start, and so we should be. As coaches, we want to be non-judgmental. But if we can't, in the sense that as a human being, as you say, we have experiences, and some of these experiences we label bad because you know, we don't like them. Or we don't want to repeat them, or we do want to repeat them. Yeah, that's, that's right. Now, as a coach, I don't want my judgments about what's good or bad about the other person to come into my work, my listening, my empathy. So in that sense, I can be aware of my judgments and not act on them, which mm -hmm. is slightly different. It's one thing to say, I'm never judgmental, which I'm not sure is even possible. But it's another thing to say, well, I've got my biases, but I don't act on them. I don't let them affect me in my work. And I can tell all the coaches or anyone who aspires to be a coach, what you just said there is extremely difficult. It takes a lot of practice to suspend that and just be an active listener to what, and then suspend your judgments, right? With the person, the client, whatever. Yeah. I want to really get into emotional intelligence. I think it's a fascinating subject. And I've often said the number one CEO skill is self-awareness. What are your thoughts around the emotional intelligence and the brain? Emotional intelligence is so important. And it's extremely important, of course, for executives, because you need to get on with people. And you can set the greatest procedures and have the greatest technology. But if you don't get on with the people and lead the people and inspire the people to work those things well, you're just not going to be effective. And I think emotional intelligence, uh, and as you said, first of all, starts with self-awareness. You've got to be aware of your own emotions and you don't stop them because that's impossible. Again, it's a bit like, you know, you can't stop your biases. You've just got to be aware of them because when emotions are triggered and they can be triggered in all sorts of ways, they're happening in oh less than a fifth of a second and they will affect your facial expression in a typical way in a fifth of a second. So you're not going to stop that. <laughs> you're just going to be aware of it. But once you are aware of it, then you have just that window of opportunity to say, how am I going to use this energy? Because all emotions have amazing energy. Am I going to use it in a constructive way? Or is it just going to run in a destructive way? So that's the second step. Once you're aware of it, you've got to be able to guide it, manage it, channel the energy right. in a constructive way. And that's one very important part of emotional intelligence. The other part, which is the kind of mirror image, is to be aware of other people's emotions so that you can treat them in a, an appropriate way. You don't wait till somebody explodes with anger to know that they're angry or somebody bursts into tears to know that they're sad. Your antennae are out, you're, you're tracking, you know. And then when you know that, when you're aware of that, you can help them to guide and, and use their emotions in a way that's constructive as well. So it's got that kind of fourfold aspect to it. Awareness, guidance, awareness, guidance, inside yeah. and out. 
one of the things I talk to my clients about a lot, just by nature of their position in the organization is stress. Talk to me about stress. How do you properly process it, manage it, and make sure that it's maybe working for you and not against you, if that makes sense at yeah, all? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, of course, when you say stress and when most people hear the word stress, it, it comes out of something bad. You don't want to be stressed. But if you look on stress as a challenge, it'll be a challenge depending on whether you perceive yourself to have the resources to meet it. And we all need challenge. Otherwise, you're in your comfort zone and everything's fine. But then you don't progress. You don't learn. You don't get very far. So we do need that challenge. We do need to come out of the comfort zone, but not too far, too fast without feeling that we have some control and resources to handle that. So in that sense, we all want good stress. The bad stress comes if it's too great a challenge or if you're under challenge all the time, chronic stress. And what that does is it alerts the emotional part of the brain that then sends the signal down to the adrenal glands that says we need more cortisol. And cortisol is the hormone that's secreted by the adrenal glands. And it's, it's called a stress hormone, but that's not fair because cortisol is important to get us up in the morning, to motivate us, to get us active. So you will naturally get have a rise in cortisol in the morning, then it starts to peak, then it goes down at night, and then you sleep. So you want that cortisol. That's not the villain. The problem is if you're constantly having a higher level of cortisol than you want, because your brain is telling your body, I'm under threat all the time, and I can't deal with this, then you'll get the high level of cortisol all the time. And that's bad for you. That, As we know, that messes up your sleep patterns, it messes up your digestion, it messes up your blood circulation, you feel anxious, it's not good. And that's the bad stress, the distress. Well, what are some practical things our listeners could do? Is there a way to convert that stress into the healthy pressure? Are there things you can do? Is it the way you process it? Or are there actions you can take? Or how do you flip that bad stress over into something that's better for you? Partly that, the long-term answer, if we come back to the mindfulness meditation, is the practice of that is going to help you anyway, because it builds resilience. And it allows when you go, oh, oh my God, can I do that? Am I able to finish that work? Can I make that presentation with 10 important people there? It helps you to think, well, yeah, just a minute, hold on. Let me think about it. So you've got that part. And then the other thing, as you say, is that kind of, reframing or reappraisal as it's called so let's look at this carefully and let's see how much control i have over it because the worst type of stress comes from the fact that you feel helpless yeah you have no choice in the matter and it's nothing you can do about it right. so powerless the first step victim. Is, yeah that's right victim powerless i can't do anything and even smaller stresses have worse effects on the body if the person feels powerless so that's always the first thing. What can I do in this matter? Where is even a small amount of leverage control that I can do? Even if it's a tiny thing, it really helps us to feel better. Well, and it's been my experience, all of these things take practice, right? They do. They do, indeed. But what you can do, of course, is you can think, well, okay, there's this thing that's happening. If I can't do much about it, what can I do to at least to minimize the impact? And what can I do to recover? 
afterwards. So you're thinking it through because anxiety and stress comes particularly, oh my God, this bad thing's going to happen and I don't know what to do. If you can at least think it through and go, well, this is going to happen, but I know I can do this to have some sort of control. And I know I can do this to make sure at least it goes as best I can. And even if it goes really badly, I know I can do this afterwards to help the situation. And what I want to achieve here is this, then you can feel a lot better about it. And your brain the amygdala calms down, stops sending the signals to the adrenal glands, and then you start to feel calmer. And that's a, a virtuous cycle, because, of course, we also know that when you feel stressed and anxious, you don't think so well anyway. When you feel frightened and anxious, basically the amygdala sounds the fire alarm in the brain. <laughs> Most of the brain downs tools and goes, OK, what's going on? <laughs> We've got to stop here and look at what's happening. So your cognitive decision-making skills and thought patterns are disrupted. And you can get trapped into that amygdala action too. It's almost like an airplane that's been hijacked. You lose control in a sense because your amygdala takes over. And if you haven't practiced the habit of pulling yourself back on course, then the amygdala really is running you instead yeah. of you running the amygdala, right? Well, it's, I don't know that you either would run either, but it's part of you. I guess it's more like a sense of control, right? I mean, it's, it's a sense of control, or if we call it influence, or that's a know, it's word. part of our body and it, it does its job and it's supposed to do its job. It's supposed to make us feel afraid when we feel threatened. Otherwise, life would be very dangerous. If you didn't appreciate threat and danger, you could walk into all sorts of bad opportunities. And people who have uh, congenital or some damage to the amygdala, they will place themselves in extremely dangerous situations because they don't feel afraid. Those are probably people who like to ride roller coasters, which I completely avoid. <laughs> They're using, I don't need that thrill in my life. You talk about in the book, the brain can act as a prediction machine. Tell us about that. Well, I think at the basis of our life, we want to feel in control, as we've said, but we need to know it needs to be to some extent predictable. Because if life is fairly predictable within reason, of course, then we can cope with it. And this is what learning is all about. So we start as babies and nothing is predictable. We just have no idea, you know, what is going on here? Who are these people and what's important here? And we learn by experience, sometimes bad experience. You know, you put your hand in the fire, ow, it's hot. You don't do that again. Mm -hmm. But you've learned something. Mm -hmm. And you can predict, if we put it that way, that if I put my hand in the fire, I'm going to hurt myself. I predict that if I tried to jump out of a second floor window, I'd hurt myself. These are predictions. And we learn from experience. So we build up this series of predictions, expectations, mental models, I call them, that helps us to deal with life as it goes on. Now, you can imagine that those sort of mental models, like I put my hand in the fire, I get burnt, that's fine. But something like people aren't trustworthy is a, a different sort of mental model. But if I run my life on that one, in other words, I'm making a prediction that people aren't trustworthy. Therefore, I'm going to definitely hold back on a number of things. I'm not going to enter fully into relationships. I'm going to keep myself back in some way. That mental model is going to constrain me. 
And it may well be built on experiences in the past where people that I have trusted have turned out to be untrustworthy. So that's a, another type of prediction. Mm-hmm. And it's those sorts of mental models that are, I think, most of what we do in coaching, because there's the old saying, the problem's not the problem. The problem is how we think about the problem. Yes. Yeah. So when somebody comes with a problem, yes, there's an external situation. However, the mental models that they're using to apply and try and solve that external situation are not adequate, possibly because they've had experiences in the past that have made them shut down certain trains of thought, and therefore they need some outside stimulation to say, well, maybe it's not quite how you thought. Let's try some experiments. So you then approach it more like a scientist. You go, okay, you're predicting this, but let's actually try some safe experiments to see what actually happens. That's what we do as coaches. We design tasks that are safe to do, that give the client better feedback than they had in the past where they learnt this particular mental model, this particular thought pattern. So we can open that up again. And that's very important because what we do is we don't remember that our experiences are context-related. In other words, supposing I don't delegate because in the past I've delegated and it's gone really badly, made a real mess. So then I do everything myself. And I find myself under a lot of stress. I don't have time to do a lot of things. It's going really badly. Why don't you delegate to someone? That doesn't work, I say. Now, as a coach, okay, so it doesn't work. Tell me about that. Well, when I did that before, et cetera, et cetera. So then you go, okay, so you did that before. You're not saying delegation does work and you're not trying to prove the person wrong. You're just saying that's an interesting idea that you have that you've learned from previous experience. Tell me about the previous experience. And that previous experience will always be, first of all, in the past, context-related with particular people at a particular time when that person had particular resources. They were younger, right? Right. And then the conversation goes, and I'm compressing this a lot. Now that it's a different context with different people and different work, let's try the experiment again. Didn't work then, and I'm not arguing with you. It didn't work then. I'm not trying to convince you otherwise. But how about now? How about if we did something different now that maybe it could? Would that be worth trying? So then you start to do that. The context is so important. The timing and situation, even though it might be the same problem, the timing and situation could be totally different. So I think it's important, as you said, to consider what context are we in today rather than the time when it didn't work. The book is Coaching the Brain, and Joseph is compressing a lot of these big ideas for us today, and you can learn a lot more about them by getting his book. Before we move to my 12 rapid questions, I want to ask you, because in your bio, it says that you're a professional musician. And so Mm -hmm. I was just curious what instruments you play and how the brain works with that particular talent? Well, I was a professional classical guitarist. Oh, cool. I gave concerts and I taught and it was an ensemble and I also played electric guitar and was in a band as well, which was a lot of fun. So that's good. I still play the guitar, still got it, but I'm not professional anymore. So were you a Gibson person or a Fender person? 
I didn't mind. I wasn't electric guitar, not so much electric guitar. I was more classical guitar. What kind of classical guitar did you play? What brand do you remember? Oh, I played uh, Romanilias. Oh, very was, cool. Uh, beautiful, beautiful guitar. Those sound wonderful. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, I just think music is fascinating. And I know with me, it has a wonderful effect on me. It helps me relax and it does it helps my brain. You know, when I learned the guitar or when we learn anything, it's pretty obvious. We practice it over and over again. You know, I practice the guitar and by practicing the guitar in a certain way, I got really good at it. And I got to a point where I didn't have to worry about what the fingers did. They just got on with it. It was a habit, something I didn't have to think about. And this allowed then, as that technique does with anything, to just express yourself, which was wonderful. And that's, we all understand that with any kind of physical habit and, and physical skill, like playing guitar or tennis or anything like that. But the brain works the same way with mental models. So any idea that you continually think about is going to be reinforced and it's going to become a habit. So you can see now how some of these mental models can become habits of thinking, which we don't reflect on, and we just apply in the situation. And a habit is precisely something that you don't think about, that worked well in the past, and you're applying it now, but you don't have to think about it. If that particular mental model, that way of thinking, isn't applicable in the present moment, that's when the trouble starts. But it works the same way. The connections, the real nervous tissue connections in the brain are strengthened by thinking just as much as they're strengthened by bodily movement. Wow. When you get to a mastery level with something, you really go into unconscious competence, right? You just, yeah, you can just perform. I always use the driving your automobile example. You're not consciously thinking about everything you have to do to drive it. You've developed a program that drives the car. Do you find right. that to be true? That's right. And what's interesting about the brain is, of course, the, the brain as such doesn't care whether you play the guitar well or badly. It's what you repeat. So if I learned the guitar with very bad habits of, of having my hands in a particular way that weren't very effective, and I continue to repeat those, that's what the brain learns, right? It doesn't have any discrimination. It will faithfully reproduce what you practice. Wow. In the same way, it has no discrimination about really useful ideas and liberating and empowering ideas and really crazy, stupid ideas or, or ones that are very limiting. It's all electrical signals to the brain, and it will faithfully reproduce and strengthen those ones that you give the most attention to and repeat the most. Wow, there's a lot of implications to that particular uh, nugget of wisdom right there. Well, I'm going to start the rapid fire questions now. And the first one is a brain question. I ask everyone that comes on the show, what's the best memory that immediately comes to mind for you? Both of my daughter. Who's the number one hero in your life? You're forcing me into a number one. I don't have a number one hero. Sorry, I can't, uh, there's That's so a, many people that, that sure. crowd into my mind. I can't give you one. All right. What's the top value you subscribe to? Awareness. Who's the most important person in your life? No, I've got to have two here. All my right, wife and daughter. And what are their names? Andrea and Amanda. That's cool. What's your favorite thing in the whole world? <laughs> Is it coaching? Is it writing? Is it... Oh, I, I love it, writing. I'm, I'm writing a science fiction novel at the moment, and that's a lot of fun. So let's go with that. All right. What's your favorite food? Salmon. 
What's the most beautiful place you've ever visited? Being at dusk on the Surrey Hills in the early autumn is just fantastic. Great. The sun shining down all the different colors of the leaves. It's beautiful. If you could describe success in one word, what word would it be? Oh, liberation. How do you want to be remembered? The world is a better place for him being there. I don't know, something like that. The footprints in the sand were beautiful. Yeah, that's right. If you could go back and talk to a younger Joseph, what advice would you give him? Say no more often. What's your favorite sound? The voice of someone I love. And out of all the lessons you've learned, what do you consider to be the best lesson? Neither as serious nor as bad as you ever think it is. We've had this wonderful conversation with Joseph O'Connor. He is the co-founder of the International Coaching Community. He's written several books. His latest book is called Coaching the Brain. Joseph, tell everybody how to find out more about you, your website, how to get your book, and so on. The book is on sale at Amazon, of course. The website is very simple. It's coachingthebrain.com. So that's easy to remember. Same as the book, Coaching the Brain. And I am on LinkedIn. Joseph O'Connor, and Facebook as well, Joseph O'Connor, coach. Joseph, thank you for taking the time today. I appreciate your friendship, and I appreciate all the work you've done. I've learned a lot today, and I know our audience did too. So thank you so much for stopping by. Well, thanks, Tony. And the answers are only as good as the questions, as the coaches say. So thank you for the good questions. You bet. Joseph O'Connor, everybody, stand by. I'll have more on Better Than Before right after this. The best way to feel love is to share it. That's why Subaru created the Subaru Share the Love event. Subaru and Subaru dealerships will have donated over $225 million to help those in need. Get a new Subaru and Subaru will donate $250 to your choice of charity partners. The ASPCA, Make-A-Wish, Meals on Wheels or the National Park Foundation. Join us for the Subaru Share the Love event going on now through January 3rd at University Subaru. Receive weekly coaching tips from Tony Richards, delivered straight to your inbox. Whether you're a CEO or an entrepreneur, Tony can help you reach your goals and give you a competitive edge within your industry. Tony's Monday Morning Coaching Memo covers topics ranging from leadership development to teamwork to company culture and more. Text the word leadership to 38470 to sign up for Tony's Monday Morning Coaching Memo or sign up online at clearvisiondevelopment.com. Welcome back, everyone, to Better Than Before. This is Tony Richards. Fascinating discussion today with Joseph O'Connor. Just very knowledgeable and outstanding, outstanding information. Here's five great quotes for your day before we get out of here to enjoy Christmas together. Number one, I believe the first test of a really great man is his humility, John Ruskin. Activity back of a very small idea will produce more than inactivity and the planning of genius, James A. Warsham. The effects of our actions may be postponed, but they are never lost. There is an inevitable reward for good deeds and inescapable punishment for bad. Meditate upon this truth and seek always to earn good wages from destiny. Wu Ming Fu. 
Number four, influence is like a savings account. The less you use it, the more you've got. Andrew Young. And number five, I really believe that more harm is done by old men who cling to their influence than by young men who anticipate that influence. Owen D. Young. That's our program today, everybody. Better Than Before is sponsored by University Subaru. And right now, when you get a new Subaru during the Share the Love event, Subaru will donate $250 to a charity in need. University Subaru, homegrown and proud of it. You can follow me, as always, on your Twitter machine at Tony Richards 4. And special thanks, as always, to our producer, Tessa Hall, without whom this show would not be possible. On behalf of all the people that bring this show to you every week and my friends and family, plus Oreo, the blue healer dog, I'm your host, Tony Richards, and I want to wish you a very Merry Christmas here at this most wonderful time of the year. And do not forget that everything gets better when you get better. for listening to Better Than Before with Tony Richards, a business leaders podcast powered by Clear Vision Development Group. For more resources from Tony, visit clearvisiondevelopment.com. Join us next time for another episode of Better Than Before with Tony Richards. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.